This morning, if you'll take your Bibles and go to Mark chapter 14, where we were in our scripture reading just a few moments ago, um, I want to read one verse. So if you were scanning that looking for a tree, it was there, you just didn't know it. And so I'm going to give you the hint, and we'll come back to this. As you, you're going to kind of wonder as this message gets underway, well, okay, we read Mark 14, 26 to 36, and he read a verse. Again, when he got up to preach, but are we really going to do anything with Mark 14? And the answer is yes, right at the end of the message. So hold on and uh, try to follow the development of it. But I want to read, read for you before we pray verse number 26. And it says here, And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. So there's your clue. You got it now? All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've given to us. And Lord, we realize we have no promise of tomorrow, but we're thankful that you did give us today. And the truth is, Lord, we don't even know what will be an hour from now. But we thank you that we are here, that we've been privileged to have another Lord's Day to meet together. Thank you for another opportunity of service to preach the Word of God. And Lord, uh, there's such always such a romance with preaching never really knowing what you intend, never really knowing all that you may accomplish. That people come, people go, and we have no clue. But we know the Spirit of God is at work, and we know that you lead and guide in these things, and things go on unseen in the hearts of men and women that we perhaps will never learn, or things are, are happening later, even years down the road. And Lord, we just take great comfort and consolation in the fact that the Word of God is living and powerful and that your promise is that it will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose whereto you send it. And I pray, Lord, that you will just lead, guide, and direct, and help me, Lord, to be able to explain the message today and preach the message today in a way that will honor and glorify Jesus Christ, and that will have meaning in every heart and life as the Spirit of God is our teacher and the applier of your truth in our lives. Thank you for those things that we've enjoyed already, and we just pray that you will help us now to be able to listen with an earnest heart And take away from us all those distractions and problems with which we have to deal, but we can't really change anything about them now. And so help us to realize this is the time of divine appointment. This is our special opportunity to hear from you for this week, although we certainly can hear from you every time we open your word. But I pray you'll bless this time especially now as you have ordained to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, this morning, of course, the subject is the olive tree, and what we're doing is following on with these telling trees of Scripture. I've given you two key divisions in this series, Trees with a Message, and we have the towering trees of Scripture. There are three of those. Don't have time to go back through that this morning, but they're unique, one of a kind. They're unparalleled in the Bible, so we bring a message on that, and that's sort of a tone setter. But uh, then we simply just encounter the, the, the trees that you find in the pages of the Bible, that if you were living in Bible lands at the time the Bible was written, that you would be familiar with yourself, part of the, just the regular flora of the Bible. Telling trees, because so often, I call them that, because so often they will have a message attached to them, and we're trying to look for that. So um, last week we looked at the fig tree. It's, 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 I decided to put the olive tree the subject of today's message, in conjunction with it, because there's a lot in common there. Let me pose the question to you this way. Can you imagine reading the Bible, and if you've looked at Atlas books, or if you've had the opportunity of a trip to the Holy Land, or anything like that, or even just familiar with your Bibles, can you really imagine the Bible without the fig tree? 
can you really imagine the Bible without the olive tree? And so there's a lot of correlation between these two. They were what you might call prominent, if not essential trees, in the, in the economy, so to speak, the way the people of God in Bible times lived and conducted their lives. Now, I want to call the message this morning the olive, the essential tree. And I want to tell you right away that I'm doing a little bit of a spin-off because in our day, we hear a lot about essential oils, right? So you may or may not know what that is, but when, I mean, you hear the term a lot, but you may or may not know precisely what's going on when they say that. And what that is basically is this, that essential oil means you've gotten to the essence. So you've got a plant or whatever, something like this. You've got a plant and there's an aroma there or there's a taste there or both. You have a way to extract that, okay? So it's pure, it's the essence of the plant. And then you put that in what you might call a, a, a vehicle, a carrier oil. And then you have essential oil. And the reason it is that is because you've managed to get now, there's not, it's not artificial, you've managed to get, it's not, you didn't come up with some way to create the aroma or the flavor artificially. You've actually gotten that and extracted it from the plant. And then the oil is just sort of the, the vehicle that's the carrier for that. So essential oils, but I want to call this the essential tree because, like I said, it's hard to imagine living in Bible times without this particular tree. And if anything, its uses and symbolism make it even broader and more essential in the Bible economy than what the fig tree is. So let's do a little summary at the beginning. We'll do a little tromping around the Bible, see what we can learn about what we might know about the fig tree. As I say, along with the olive tree, it is one of the most prominent trees in the scripture. Let's document that as we have other times with some statistics. So some form of the word olive. What might we do with olive? Well, we might put an S on the end, so we have olive or olives, the plural. We might just have olive and not tree, okay? Or we could put a T on the end, you know. You do see that a time or so in the New Testament, the Mount, the Olivet, referring to the, to the Mount of Olives. And oftentimes we talk about those Matthew 24, 25 chapters as the Olivet Discourse because it was from the Mount of Olives where Jesus delivered that. So some form of the word olive you find in the Bible 56 times. That's pretty, pretty good. You have a, a, a goodly number. What's deceptive, however, even about that figure is it doesn't account for the fact that you have 187 other references in the Bible to oil. And you should realize by now that when you encounter oil in the Bible, it's not Texas crude. It's not up from the ground come a bubble and crude, you know, like on the Beverly Hillbillies. It's talking about the oil that comes from the olive tree. So it's not a petroleum-based thing. It's a plant-based thing. And so those references just really compound, really, the regularity with which we encounter something about the olive or the olive tree in the Bible. Uh, we've had, I think, some pretty good success with considering first references in the Bible. There seems to sometimes, many times, be something that stands out there. That's going to be the case today. So let's turn to the book of Genesis chapter 8, not quite as early as with the fig tree, where we found that actually mentioned among the trees of the garden, but Genesis chapter 8, let's go there. 
And you can keep some fingers uh, or just leave it behind. We will get back to it. So I, you're going to have a long time to have your fingers there. So I, you know, I'll let you off the hook there. Don't have to hold the place in Mark 14 for right now. But let's look at Genesis chapter 8, verse 11. Here's our first reference in the Bible. And the dove came in unto him. So what's this? Noah and the ark, right? Noah is trying to determine if it's now safe to leave the ark. So... The dove came in unto him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. Now that is very interesting because beginning from that time forward, we recognize even in secular society, the olive or the olive branch is a symbol of what? is a symbol of peace, especially in the Bible where you have it accompanied by the dove, which is a symbol of innocence and also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So uh, this is kind of an interesting thing that we have this idea of safety. Why would you be concerned about safety? Because the flood had just come on the earth, right? And the flood was as a result of man's sinfulness and God pouring out his what? His judgment, his anger, his wrath on the unparalleled sinfulness into which the earth had fallen in the days of Noah. Genesis 6, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And I don't know what Noah had on us, to be truthful with you. It seems like we're living in the days of Noah again. So we are ripe for God's judgment. But that's the context of all this, and it's a symbol of peace. Here's a little interesting uh, potpourri, so to speak, and see what you think of this. But I mentioned that down through time, the olive or olive branch has come to us as a symbol of peace. Did you know that the American Continental Congress, so back before... Uh, independence from Great Britain, and the Continental Congress was trying to find a way to avert war, if possible. Always good to do that if you can, all right? And so they drafted a document to present to, to the English government, to the king, and it was called the Olive Branch Petition. So you, you get the idea of how this has come to us down through time, and it was to uh, present a way of trying to avoid armed conflict which was unsuccessful, and of course, eventually the Revolutionary War took place. But even to this very day, extending an olive branch is a phrase that we use when we're talking about reconciliation. If you're realizing this isn't good, the state of my relationship with this other person or nations, the state of my relationship with this other person is not good or this other nation is not good, we, we look for some form to... Uh, reconciliation, some way to sort of, and the expression is, extend the olive branch. So tuck that away. We'll come back to it at the end of the message. The olive tree is also symbolic of prosperity. We saw that with the fig tree last week. And Deuteronomy chapter 8, let's go over there now. We find this in the very same context where we saw this same idea about the fig tree last week. All right, so verse 7 of Deuteronomy 8, The Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, Verse 8, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees. So there's the fig tree. And pomegranates. And look at the end of the verse. Also in the list of illustrations, a land of oil olive, or we tend to say more olive oil, 
and honey. So when you look at the things the land produced, not thinking just about its pastoral suitability, but you look at the things that the land produced, figs are mentioned, pomegranates are mentioned, you have to have water, so it mentions that in verse 7, springs, brooks, all this kind of thing, but you have to have the produce of the land. You have to have these essentials, and the fig tree is given as an example of this, barley is given as an example of this, but then also the olive. So what was the olive tree used for, and what did it come to symbolize? First of all, here's a list of several things that the olive or olive oil came to be symbolic of. Number one, prosperity, as we just saw in Deuteronomy 8.8. Also, joy. Let's move forward now to Psalm 45. While you're finding Psalm 45, I want to mention that on Wednesday night, we were looking at Psalm 2, and I said Psalm 2. One of the reasons we wanted to look at Psalm 2 was Psalm 2 is a great example of what's called a royal psalm. In other words, a psalm that uses the springboard of the Davidic kingship to talk about the coming messianic king and describe his role. Well, in Psalm 45, you have another of these royal psalms. And this is another one where you you find out that very quickly the the language leaves David or Solomon behind, and you can tell it's talking about someone greater, something more. Well, you get down to verse 7 is what I'm interested in. It just says this. By the way, verse 6 is quoted in the New Testament, Thy throne, O God, so now we know we're way beyond a human being. It's addressing God himself. That's quoted in the book of Hebrews and is a great text to use to demonstrate that the, very, the New Testament is very clear in teaching the deity of Christ. I've used this in discussions with Jehovah's Witnesses before. And uh, after a while, you, if you catch them flat-footed a time or two until they get wise, and then they go back and ask headquarters, how do we explain that? And they've always got some rigmarole way around it. But verse 7, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness, and therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. You may recognize that from the book of Hebrews. If you go over to Psalm 104, we're still there. I think we can take just a moment to do this. You'll see a similar reference. It's not called the oil of gladness here. It's actually called the oil of joy. Psalm 100, verse uh, 104. And uh, we're looking at... That's not what I wanted here. I'm really sorry. Keep going. Turn to Isaiah. This is what I want, but you, at least you don't have to backtrack. Backtrack in a moment. Psalm or Isaiah 61. We do have a verse from Psalm 104. It's just not now. Verse 2, you'll recognize. Also, these are messianic verses. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and to preach ve- uh, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Boy, won't it be wonderful when the sorrows of earth are past? I, I just, I, I think about this, and I, I think, you know, Lee was talking about things as you get older, and I think the older you get, the more you just, you know, there's come, going to come a day I'm going to wake up and be pain-free. My back is going to work like it's supposed to work or whatever ailment you've got, or I don't know what we're, what we're doing for sleep, but if we do that, it's going to be a good night's rest. You're not going to wake up and be troubled and, and, and can't sleep. You won't have any of that going on. I think about that. 
So these verses that are messianic verses, and it just says, God's going to swap out ashes for beauty. God's going to swap out mourning for the oil of joy. So these are linked up thoughts is my point. Oil is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. That's well known, so I won't look at verses on that. Also Israel, and I don't think we need to turn for this, but the nation of Israel, if you turn to Romans 11, right? So we have that example there of the olive branches, the olive tree. And who were the natural branches? Do you know? That was the Jewish nation, Israel. And then he speaks to the Gentiles and he says, hey, you were grafted in contrary to nature. Wild branches were grafted onto a good olive tree. You do that, you know, that's a legitimate agricultural illustration. You don't do it the other way around, but you do it that way. You take a wild branch grafted onto a good olive tree. Paul uses it as an example to say, look, you better not be high and mighty. You can be broken off too. And you're not coming along on your own power anyway. You need the root and fatness of the olive tree. You need its sap. That's the only reason you've got this opportunity. Salvation is of the Jews, folks. We better remember that. They are God's chosen people, and he hasn't changed his mind on that point. So anyway, that's where we are with that. Um, As far as other uses of oil are concerned, it's used in anointing, both secular and sacred. So secular, of course, even a verse like Psalm 23, 5, thou anointest my head with oil. Now you you hear that and you kind of think to yourself, hey, I want somebody pouring oil on my head. But Thinking of it a little bit differently, now's when maybe we'll just use that Psalm 104, since I got you all excited about Psalm 104. Let's just have a look at this, because here's you're going to see what what this meant to people living in the Bible lands, having this oil available to them and how it was used. Psalm 104, verse 15 says this, And wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face shine. And bread, which strengtheneth man's heart. So think about this. Did you ever notice this? I kept wondering for the longest time when I would drive longer distances and I would say, why on earth are my my lips chapped? Do you ever have that? And I finally figured it out. It's the air conditioner. It's the air conditioner running and it's blowing that air on you and my lips get chapped. Well, I told you I'm never too far from chapstick. So I've got it down there and I put that on there. And... You know, some of you ladies, I, I guess they've got dishwashing liquids. You don't have to worry about this so much anymore. But used to be they raved and raved on TV with these advertisements. It's been so long since I've looked at anything like that on TV that I couldn't tell you. But, you know, about you have dishwash uh, hands. You know, they get dry and your skin cracks. Same thing with your lips. You know, when that happens, that doesn't feel good, does it? Those little places that break open, they hurt. So in Bible times, when you were out there and you had that blast of the sun and dry wind and so forth constantly hitting you in the face, you, you would come in and at the end of the day, you would use this as an, as an emolument. In other words, you would, you would use this to lubricate your skin, just like we use chapstick or just like you put a lotion on your hands. I, you know, I used to think that was for women until I started getting in the wintertime and I'd be putting about 20 times a day, I'd be putting my hand in that wood stove with a glove, of course. I'd use welder's gloves. But I'd put my hand in there, and I noticed something. That my hands in the wintertime dry out and do all that. You have to put that, get a decent lotion to put on there, otherwise it becomes painful. That's what it served for. And there's another use that's very practical in everyday life in the Bible. It used for healing. 
If you were going to take your first aid kit with you, what would you put in it? Well, think of the Good Samaritan, and I'll tell you what was in his. I mean, two things that were in his first aid kit were oil and wine. Remember that? It says when he found the guy along the side of the road, he was all busted up and half dead, and he'd been beat up. What did he do? For his wounds, he poured in oil and wine. You find that in Luke chapter 10, verse 34. The wine, the wine functioned as a disinfectant, so it was fermented, folks. Uh, and the oil, of course, would be a, a healing agent, just like your chapstick or your hand lotion on your hands. So in the light of all this, you think about all these things we've talked about, what it was used as a symbol for or became a symbol of, the different everyday uses that people needed for it in the Bible, not to mention using it for light, because that's what you would have in your lamp or that's what you would soak your torch with so that you would have light. They, by the way, a lot of people don't understand this, and I don't mean it anything is other than educational because it's perfectly legitimate to do this. But when you read about candles in the King James Version, you know what? They were using what was called a dynamic equivalent. The translators were because they didn't have candles in Bible times. But if you talked about oil lamps, um, people wouldn't necessarily catch on to that in those days. I prefer sometimes those types of translations myself because it might force me to get a book out or something and check what were Bible customs but as I'm going to show you in a few moments, if you don't understand what they were doing. So, for instance, when you read about Jesus and you read about in the Revelation chapter 2 and all this about the one, about the seven golden, it says candlesticks, right? But they weren't candles. They were oil lamps. And, and it, you know, it's the same idea. There's not really a problem. Like I said, they used the nearest thing that would make sense to everybody when they read the Bible. And that's to some extent, a translator's job. If you don't have something that's going to make any sense, you've got to come up with something in that culture that makes sense. Sometimes you put a footnote or have an explanatory note for why you did that. But anyway, so that's what's going on. Used it also for light. So with all of this going on, folks, I, I think you can understand why I might be inclined to regard this as the essential tree in the Bible. Now, what I want to do is use that thought that hopefully we've laid some decent biblical groundwork for and draw from usage and draw from symbolism. I want to speak about three essentials here this morning. And the first essential is salvation. Could I just say this this morning? You know what? You can have everything else in this world and if you leave here without Jesus Christ, and if you leave here without the forgiveness of sins, everything you had and everything you did in this world will be for naught. Because you will never see it again. Instead, you will be separated from God for all eternity in a place the Bible refers to as hell. No one in his right mind wants that. So where do we get the idea of salvation? You know, I, I uh, haven't done this recently, but years ago it used to be, you know, I would try to think through, all right, what are good ways, you know, if I get an opportunity to witness to people, what are good ways to do that? And I would really often use Mark eight thirty six. It says what I just, the point that I just made. It says this, for what shall it profit a man, woman, child, doesn't matter, what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul makes that point right so if you're here today and you don't know christ as savior please think about that 
Please let the Holy Spirit grip your heart with that. You don't want to leave this world without Jesus. You don't want to leave this world without knowing that you have the forgiveness of sins because you'll be leaving here for whatever fun or hard times you had here. You'll be leaving here for something you, it's unimaginable in the worst direction. So where do we get this? Well, as I said earlier, the Holy Spirit is a well-known symbol for, or oil rather, is a well-known symbol for the Holy Spirit. And you can't help but when you think about this and relate this to salvation, you can't help but think about the parable. And this is where I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 25. Jesus told a story. And so you see now why I put this little part in a, a little while ago about the oil and the light and the lamps and the torches. Because this parable doesn't make any sense unless you can figure that out. Unless you look at the words. And in, in this case, you actually need a commentary or some, look up a Strong's Concordance or something to give you a little more insight into this. But let's have a look. Matthew 25, verse 1 says this, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps. All right, now I told you a while ago, the lamps were like you might have in your hand. And it, it would be a, there would be a reservoir in that lamp for the oil, the olive oil, and then a little hole or a pinched place on the other side where you could put a wick down in. It would draw that up and you would light that wick. Now, having told you all that, I'm telling you that's not what you have here. Here where they translated lamp, it's actually a slightly different word for lamp. It's the word that's a torch. So now, if you think back to your old westerns, right, or some of these scenes where people would show up at night, riders on horses, you know, and they were searching for something, and what would they all have? Sticks in their hands, right? And rags wrapped around the top of those sticks, soaked with some kind of oil or kerosene or something like that, and that was how they got their light. That's what this is. Something very much like that is what this is. They're torches. They're not lamps, even. So what happens? Now it begins to make sense. It says, they went forth to meet the bridegroom. So they anticipate that it's going to be later. How long, they don't know. So they have... They're torches. Well, five were wise and five were foolish. What was the difference between them? Well, those that were foolish took their torches, but no oil with them. See, now it makes a little better sense to you, and the next verse explains it explicitly by saying, the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Do you see what's going on now? So I've got my torch, or look at, look at it maybe this way. I've got my flashlight but I'm not sure how long these batteries are good for, so I've got some spares. You know, I figured that out a long time ago out there deer hunting. I had a, a, a surefire light, and I thought, well, when it gets ready to get dim, I'll know. Uh-uh. When it got ready to get dim, it didn't get dim. It was off. It was on one minute and off the next. You have to have spare batteries or you could be in a world of hurt. And so you have to have spare oil because if you're going to go out there, it's fine. I mean, you sit down where you're going to wait where you're expecting the bridegroom to come by on his way back with the bride, and you've got your torch, great, until the oil that saturates those rags at the top of that thing burns out. Then what are you going to do? You're out, of, you're out of commission, unless you have oil, a vessel along, a little receptacle with extra oil. That's what the foolish ones lacked. They just figured they'd be fine. The ones that were wise said, no, we don't know how long it's going to be. And so they took oil in their vessels. When the bridegroom, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. So the point of this parable is not that you shouldn't go to sleep. 
Some people have preached it that way. No, the five wise and the five foolish, they all got drowsy and fell asleep. That's not the point. At midnight, there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. Okay, you're going to get away the stuff that's charred and no good anymore, and you're going to put some fresh oil on this thing so it'll work again. Then you're going to strike your flint or whatever and get this thing going again. The foolish said unto uh, then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are going out. In other words, they kept trying to light them. Our version says are gone out, but it's a present tense. Are going out. They were trying to light them, and they wouldn't light because there was really no fuel left there. But the wise answered and said, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. You know what? You can't share salvation with somebody else. You can witness to it. But people don't get saved by you going up and saying, let me share my salvation with you. Paul said, if I could do that, I'd gladly do that for Israel. In fact, I'd give mine if Israel would be saved. But you can't do that. Salvation is a personal thing. doesn't matter if your father's saved. doesn't matter if your mother. It matters, but not for, not, in other words, it doesn't get you into heaven. You have to transact business yourself personally with Jesus Christ and be saved yourself. That's how this works. But, folks, the point that I want to make is, you know, the ultimate unreadiness is not whether or not you've fallen asleep. The ultimate unreadiness is not being saved when the Lord returns. When he calls, that's the ultimate unreadiness. And that's why he says these were foolish. They had no oil, the oil being the symbol of the Holy Spirit, and they were shut out. Their opportunity was gone. They missed. You know, I... Smile a little bit. Sometimes little kids come up with ways of putting things that seem to have it better than we can do even when we have a lot of learning. But this little mother was trying to explain to her little girl, their father had passed away. The father had passed away. And the mother, trying to explain to her, said, God has sent for your father and will send for us. I just don't know when. Little girl thought about it for a while and she said this. She said, if we do not know just when God is going to send for us, do you think we had better pack up and get ready to go? God might send for us when we are not ready. Well, it's true, beloved. We all think we're going to have more time. And sometimes it doesn't work out that way. So we know, and I don't want to take a lot of time for verses, but let's just flip over to John 14. We know the Holy Spirit is the symbol of genuineness. You can have form. You can have religion. You can have your name on a piece of paper. You can even be baptized and have a certificate. All these different things. But you know what? Salvation is not genuine unless we have a personal relationship with Christ. And when we have a personal relationship with Christ, he sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts, who is the agent of assurance and so Jesus says to the disciples in John 14, verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. So I'm saying you can be in the church today. You can be on the church's roll. But if you don't have the Holy Spirit in your heart, if you don't have a personal genuine relationship with Jesus Christ of which the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is a proof. It doesn't, it's not genuine. It's inauthentic. And Paul is kind of blunt when he makes his point about this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. 
He says, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Don't belong to Christ without having the presence of the spirit in our lives. So, first of all, salvation is an essential. The oil symbolizing the Holy Spirit. We need to be absolutely certain that we know we've been saved. Secondly, service. Now, we get saved, and God leaves us here. Why? Well, because he has something for us to do. You know, over the years, I've had many people, especially as people get older, and they say, I just don't know why I'm still here. And I understand that. It's not like I don't, I don't have some ability to understand that. I do. Sometimes they've lost their mate. Sometimes they've kind of gotten decrepit. And they don't understand. But, you know, I have been with elderly people enough in my ministry and enough in my life to see certain things that God does leave them here for. And I don't think I could even begin to understand it all, but I know he has plans and I know he has reasons. I know some of those people have had difficult circumstances and I've known them to be prayer warriors. I think of one lady right now that was for a number of years up in, we always called it Huntington Manor because I think that was the first name for it and it seems like it's had about four names ever since. But, you know, as places go, old folks' homes go, I mean, it, it wouldn't... I mean, there, there are others that would be a little more upscale. So, I mean, you know, it's not the best thing, to, maybe, to have to be in those circumstances, but she was there, and she accepted that. And when she came to peace with it, she developed a lifestyle in that place, and she would get up every morning and do whatever her toiletries and all that stuff early. I'm talking early. And then she'd get fixed and get, get in her chair and get her clothes and all this kind of stuff. And then she'd lay out on her bed gospel tracks. I'm serious. I mean, three, four, five titles. She'd have them just laid out there waiting for somebody to come. And she not only did that, but she prayed all the time. So whenever I went to see her, I kind of looked forward to it in a lot of ways because I knew a lot of what the conversation was going to be. And I always made it a point to bring her up to date on certain things that were going on and ask for prayer. You know what? I bet there were a lot of days she didn't understand why she was there. But God has a reason. He leaves us in this world for a purpose, to serve him. And that anointing oil that I mentioned a moment ago, it symbolizes that when, when a person was anointed with oil in the Old Testament, it symbolized consecration. Would you go with me to the book of Exodus? I just want to show you one quick verse, and we'll leapfrog over to another one to make this point. But Exodus chapter 30, I just want you to see this because I know you know it, but sometimes actually seeing the word in the text sometimes makes the point stand out to us just a bit more. But in Exodus chapter 30, verse 25 says this, And thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary, it shall be an holy anointing oil. So they anointed the priest is what is talked about here, but the king was anointed, the prophet was anointed. Drop to verse 30, here's what it says. And thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. So what did this oil symbolize? It symbolized when they were anointed with it that God had set them apart. God had consecrated them for a particular service. God has done that for us too. Our anointing isn't with physical, literal oil. It's with the Holy Spirit. He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So you need the presence of the Holy Spirit in salvation, but in service you need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when David, I said we'd leapfrog to one other, so go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Here's an example where we have all, you know, we have it pretty much spelled out, the point to make. 1 Samuel 16, when David was anointed, it says in verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So it not only symbolized his consecration, it symbolized his endowment. God, having called him to this office or to this position, was now going to give him the power. And folks, I just want to say to you this morning and remind myself as well, you know, you can go through routines. I mean, anyone can learn a routine. If you do it enough, you can learn a routine. You can know how to come into church and do what they do. You can read the verses when it's time to read the verses. You can sing the hymns when it's time. We can all go through routines. And we can actually become good at our routines. But if you don't have the Holy Spirit involved with what you're doing, you know what? After the service is over, you realize, I just sang all those verses. I read those I sang all those verses, those songs I read. I catch myself doing that sometimes. I, I'll confess to you, even this morning, someone gave me the note about Joe, and I was distracted for a few moments with what we were doing. I had to get my, my mind back on keel. I wanted to see what it was and be sure I knew what the purpose of the note was. And I'm glad you gave it to me. Don't, this is not meant to chastise anybody. I'm just saying, first thing you know, you've sung the verses, you've read the verses, you've listened to the sermon. The preacher said, amen. You walked out the door, and you think to yourself, what did I get this morning out of the service? Therefore, in my life, the way I make this practical is I don't, it works for me if I pray. If I don't think to pray, I don't mean it, but what I'm really telling God is I'm okay. I can manage this. I know what I'm doing. And in reality, I might know what I'm doing, but I can't manufacture any sense that God is with me in something without his presence and without his power. And the worst thing in the world, especially in Christian service, the worst thing in the world is to be left to your own to do it. And not have some sense that God is with you and God is about the effort. The Associated Press reported something that I found rather humorous as well again. This report came a number of years ago from a little place in Kentucky called Glasgow, Kentucky. It simply said this, Leslie Puckett after struggling to start his car, lifted the hood and discovered that someone had stolen the motor. <laughs> well, I kind of think sometimes that's us. We struggle. And we don't realize it's because there's no power there. That's why. So we need, an essential is the salvation, the oil symbolizing the presence of the Holy Spirit. An essential is the Holy Spirit in our, ser our service. We need that, that power. But last, and I told you we would come back, not that we're going to spend an undue amount of time, but Mark 14. There's one that relates on a different level. These two that I've been talking about have been more designed as practical thoughts for you and me. Not that this is not practical, but it relates on a different level. And for this, we want Mark 14... Because I want to steer you to something now. 
First of all, I said we would reread one of those verses, and it mentioned the Mount of Olives. But now, let's drop down to a later verse. Let's see something else in the text that we read this morning. Drop down to verse 32. And they came to a place which was called, what? Gethsemane. Do you know what it means? Oil press. Oil press. I want to talk for a moment about suffering. Oil press. Do you think about the grapes? You're kind of glad that maybe it fermented when you realize how they did that. You know, they put those things in those things and jumped up and down on them with their feet. I'm thinking, ew. That's how they got the juice out. The berry had to be crushed. They didn't do it quite the same way with the olives, but the principle, the idea is essentially the same. You had to press that berry to get that oil. Oil press. So why was it called that? Well, you know, Gethsemane was, you can go and, and look at them today. Those trees that are, that are in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is still there, those trees are widely regarded as, as the oldest examples of olive trees in Palestine. Some people feel they're old enough that they could have been the actual ones that witnessed what went on in that garden. What went on in that garden? Suffering. On the disciples' part, some sleeping. On the Savior's part, far from it. Suffering. Let's read about it. In Mark 14 and verse 32, they came to a place which was called the oil, the oil press because of those trees that were there and the press that was at hand. And he saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. You know, one of the most elementary of human needs is the presence of others and comfort. Jesus knew what was in store. He took with him Peter and James and John. And look what it says. He began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. He saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and prayed and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass. You find no other example of anything like this in the life of Christ. This was unparalleled what went on in that garden until the cross. This was sort of like the beginning stages of it. This is like when the tide began to turn and instead of rising now it's ebbing and picking up speed. And he began to be sore amazed if that's possible. But it says so. It's one thing to academically know what's going to come to pass, but to actually enter into the experience, which is what's beginning to happen. Verse 36, it was so extreme that he prayed three times, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup. Nevertheless, but what, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Did you know that the parallel account in Luke tells us something that no one else tells us? It says in verse 44 of Luke 22, and being in an agony, agony. See, we, we tend to think of the cross where he experienced his passion, his agony. It started here. However little we can understand or explain that, it started here as this dark cloud of what it was going to be to be sin for us who knew no sin, of what it was going to be to 
not only be our sin bearer, to be separated from his father. Somehow that began to come over him, that experience, and all that was involved. And he began, it says, being in an agony, sweat as it were, great drops of blood. I don't understand all that. But I do know this, besides those olive trees that witnessed it that day, there were three men who witnessed it. However little they understood of it at the time, however little they understood of it at the time, or even appreciated it at the time, I'll tell you one thing, they did later. Let's go to 1 Peter and let Peter tell us he was there. What does he remember about that experience and also things he saw at the cross? Verse 5 of chapter, or verse 1 of chapter 5, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. 1 Peter 5, 1. And then, if that doesn't tell you that it made an impression on him by him telling him, I witnessed it. Back in chapter 3, verse 18, he tells us what it was involving, what it accomplished, why it had to be. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Beloved, look, here's something people don't preach very much anymore. They may tell you Christ died on the cross, but how much do they really explain of why he was dying on the cross and what was happening there? And very little preaching is done to the effect that what was going on there was punitive. Punishment. Whose? Not his. He did no guile, neither was any sin found in his mouth. Why was he suffering? What I deserved. What you deserved. Because there's punishment involved in sin. From the very beginning in the garden when God told them, don't eat. Because in the day that thou eatest, though, thou shalt surely die. And all that that involved with it, and all the anguish, and all the difficulties, and an eternity of it for people who leave without Jesus Christ. That's why he did that on the cross for you, so you wouldn't have to face that eternity separated from God. And that punitive aspect of God's dealings. We heard this morning about the one you want to experience. Mercy entered. That's the one you want because mercy is God not giving us what we deserve and grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. I want that mercy. I know what I deserve and I don't want to be there. And I look at the cross and I'm reminded a little, again, a little boy, this time not a little girl, but sometimes they come up with them too. But a dad was taking his son to Easter church. Boy, was three years old. And he was desperately trying to figure out how in the world do I explain all that this involves to a three-year-old and the people of the church. Well, we have it here. So up at the front of the church, they had a big cross that they had put up for Easter. And so thinking of the passion and trying to explain this to his son, he said to the little boy, Jesus died because people nailed him to the cross. And the little boy thought about it. His eyes kind of got big. He looked around the church. And he said, you mean these people? Well, in a, in a way, he spoke more than he knew. Yes, these people. Just like I told you, Rembrandt painted himself into the crowd in that throng that was around the cross because he identified with that. He realized that he was among the mockers. 
He was among those who called out for the Savior's blood. His blood be on us and on our children. I need mercy. And I'm glad that I've experienced that. But only because Jesus suffered and became a propitiation. How many times you hear sermons on that? We're told this in the Bible. Don't throw the word propitiation out. That's a word we need. Because it means appeasement. It means satisfaction. It means that Jesus was doing something on that cross in view of the anger and righteous judgment of God. He was absorbing that punishment for you and me. And the Bible is clear about it. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And He is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Wrath was being poured out there. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5, I love this verse, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. And here it is. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. Beloved, the olive branch, the offer of peace, the offer of reconciliation, it comes because of the cross. The cross is God's olive branch. It's where you can be safe that the wrath is over. It's where you can know that you let the dove out of the window to see if the wrath of God had subsided and it was safe to come out. You come to the cross and find yourself covered there by the sufferings of our Savior and by His precious blood. And it's safe to come out. Because He took that for me and took that for you. I want to close with this. You know, I don't know whether it's good or bad, but one thing the coronavirus has got us really attuned to is all this talk about who's essential and who's not. <laughs> you know, I mean, I keep thinking, well, the guy whose job isn't essential thinks it is. But anyway, we've gotten, keep hearing that language, non-essential, non-essential. I'm just saying to you here this morning, there are some things that are essential. I don't know about the other things, but I can tell you there's some things that are essential. And you start with the cross. And you start with salvation. And then as a Christian, you realize you need his presence in your life for service, his power. And then you go on and you begin to wonder, how did all this come about and how was all this possible? And then you realize those old olive trees witnessed it. The sufferings of our Savior, the shedding of his precious blood. And there I stand. How about you? And I would just say a word of encouragement on behalf of those who are being baptized today. When you realize all this, and I, I full well believe that this is exactly what they are telling you today by giving this public testimony, I'm glad to stand up and tell people, I'm a Christian. I've been saved by the blood. I'm a part of God's family. I'm a child of God. 